stepped out now in this series uh, looking at God's story. If you remember, we actually started this back in February, looking at uh, God's that thread, of, if you remember, the thread of redemption that runs throughout from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. We're, we're through, that, uh, through quite a bit of that. Uh, we started back in Genesis with creation. We saw that fall, if you remember. We heard the promise. We're making our way up to the fulfillment of that promise in the church and ultimately to the new creation. Most of that story has been lived out in forms of people. It's been lived out in forms of biography, like Adam. You can't hardly get anywhere without thinking about that story of Adam and Eve and how they were the first two characters in the story. They're also the ones that triggered the fall. We watch that story unfold until we begin to hear names that are extremely, extremely familiar to us. Abraham and the story of a nation, a covenant people that comes into existence so that God has a family through whom to work. And from Abraham, we make our way down then to the prophet Moses, the lawgiver. He was the leader out of Egypt when he brought them out in redemptive fashion from slavery. We see the first glimpses of how God is going to go about redeeming his people. We walk through that story of the promised land and in taking over this location, that piece of ground, which was so important to Israel's history. And we watch, we watch the uh, transition from land. Oh, I think this is so important. It's a transition then from land into some kind of lineage when we hit David and the king. Um, I, I said this many, many weeks ago when we were talking about the land. Um, we're still worried about the land today. That transition went from land to kingdom. And it's all about God's kingdom that we're trying to preserve. Not I'm, I'm, it's not something, we're not speaking against Israel, but the land became a people. And it changed within the kingship of David. And then the focus really became not upon the, the plot of ground you're on. It became the kingdom of Israel. What we haven't done, and unfortunately we are not going to have the time to do it, what we haven't done is walk down through the kingdoms and talk about things like Assyria and the captivity uh, of, of Israel or Babylon or in, in the destruction of Jerusalem or, or Persia and, and how God worked in all of those nations. That we're going to have to save for another series. But if you can remember back a couple of months ago, moving up to Easter, we came to Matthew's genealogy. And we looked in that genealogy at how God was in the process of fulfilling his promise that he made clear back in Genesis that there would be one who comes and that that one would bring redemption to Israel or to, yeah, to, to his people. We, we would call him Jesus because he would provide forgiveness of sins. We would... His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes that whole story this way in Galatians chapter 4. And if you want to just uh, read along on the screen, that's fine. Or, or take a look in your Bibles if you want to look at Galatians chapter 4. 
Um, very familiar passage, I think, that you will recognize it right away. But Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse number 4, it says this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So if you are in Christ Jesus, you are an heir, right? It's really a remarkable story when you come to the New Testament and you see, you begin to see some very interesting parallels between Israel's history and what God has been doing in the life of Jesus. And I hope that you got your pens out or your pencils out if you like to take notes, because this is just, I, I want to share a few things with you. This is a fascinating parallel. This is what Israel is like. This is what, 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 uh, what's comparable in Jesus' life and how they just match up together. When you think of the opening part of Matthew, for example, you're introduced to the miraculous birth of Jesus. It's there that we have this quotation from Isaiah, chapter 7, that a virgin will conceive and give birth, bring forth a son, and you will have, and you have this miraculous birth story. That miraculous birth story, then, is followed immediately by the kind of trauma that comes into, into some people's lives. And, and so in order to escape the potential of being killed by Herod, they make their way to Egypt where they stay for apparently a couple of years. And then they're called back up out of Egypt. It's an experience that Matthew says is not unlike the redemptive experience that Israel went through. In fact, he quotes Isaiah, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And then once Jesus comes back and you have the story unfolding in front of you, you watch him go through a baptismal experience at the hands of John the Baptist and moves from his baptismal experience immediately into the desert where he is tempted for 40 days. Only he doesn't fail. He succeeds. Moving from the wilderness, you find him on the, on the side of a mountain giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's the grand opening of, of um, it's the New Testament's kind of explosive introduction. The, the, the grand opening of the kind of righteousness that God is looking for in his people. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think, uh, to, to, to make the connections between Israel's story and Jesus' story, but they are so much alike. There are so many similarities. Let me just give you a few examples of that. Just as Jesus was born miraculously, so was Israel brought miraculously from nothing into something. A people who didn't exist become a people, and they find themselves in Egypt in slavery, just as Jesus found himself in Egypt. And they came out in what Paul calls a baptism in the cloud. And in the sea, when they crossed the Red Sea, just as Jesus was then baptized in the Jordan River. And, and they spent, catch this, 40 years in the desert, just as Jesus spent 40 days 
in the desert in temptation. They failed, he did not. Immediately after leaving the desert, they received the the law, Israel did, just as the Sermon on the Mount, some would say the Sermon on the Law, was delivered after Jesus came out of his desert experience. It's just really a a remarkable parallel. What you're catching is is a promise that was made back, clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 15, that God would produce a prophet like unto Moses. And Jesus comes as that perfect Moses in showing us what it means for the people to be righteous before God. And so the church then becomes this, the, the new Israel of God, according to the Apostle Paul. There are so many fascinating parallels in this story, in that story. But I want to just come, um, I want to come to just one rather unusual event in that. And I want to camp there just for a little bit. Um, I, I want you to think about that story of the birth of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You may recall what that says. It, 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 it's then identified for you in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 22. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says this. Isaiah says that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. Well, actually it says, it technically says that a young woman will conceive. But by the time that we bring it around to the New Testament, they have chosen the word virgin in that place. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, records that Jesus was in fact conceived by the Holy Spirit at the hand of God, and that he came forth from a young woman whose name was Mary, who had never known a man. It's, it's just really a strange kind of story, I, I think. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's not the kind of story that you normally hear. Let's at least put it that way, right? Matthew says that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, that just as this happened in the Old Testament, it also happened in the days of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, 13 different times he identifies an event in the life of Jesus of the teaching in, uh, um, or the teachings of Jesus that he identifies as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That just as, as it happened in the Old Testament this way, Matthew says it happened in the life of Jesus this way, that this is an anticipation of what was to come. That, that prophetic word is such a powerful statement about the nature of God and who Jesus is. But I want to give you some examples. Now, not all of these are from Matthew, um, but, but here is just a sample of some of the things that are recorded about Jesus in the Old Testament. Look up at your screen here. One would be that he would be born to Abraham born to Abraham, of all the people on the face of the earth. You need to catch on how this is going to start to narrow down. Of all the people on the face of the earth, God said the Son, the Messiah, will come through one particular family, and that was the family of Abraham. And then he says, not only will you come through Abraham, but he's going to come through Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael. But it wasn't going to be through Ishmael. Abraham tried to fix that, right? Remember that? He tried to help God out. But, but God says, no, it's, you're, 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 it's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through Isaac. 
And uh, it was going to be specifically through him. And it would come not only from Abraham and Isaac, but also it would come from Jacob. Not Esau, but from Jacob. So it would come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. Uh, not any of the other 11 sons. Remember, Judah was the fourth son of, 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 uh, of Israel. But it was going to come through this specific son, uh, there's the son Judah. Not only would it come through Judah, but when you come further down the lineage, this is so great. He, he would narrow this down and, and say this particular son will come through the family of Jesse. He narrows the field out of all the families on the face of the earth down to one specific line, each time narrowing it, narrowing it, narrowing it, narrowing it. Narrowing that field and saying, not this one, not this one, not this one, but this one. It, it's really a, a, a remarkable tale of how God brought this experience about. That, that he's going to say um, in Micah, chapter 5, for example, that Jesus will be born in the town of Bethlehem. Ephrath, I can never pronounce that. Ephratha. It just means Bethlehem. I mean, that's, that, that's the area. Um, or the old name of all the towns on the face of the earth, all of the, all of the, of all the children born that year, this one son is going to be born in that town in Bethlehem. He's going to say things like he's going to be born of a virgin. Uh, he's going to come um, while the temple is still standing. Now I want you to think about this. This is that in and of itself is a rather strange kind of thing in light of the fact that the temple only existed for a few hundred years. You know, we think about the temple, we always, we don't, we don't really think, we don't, we don't put a lot of thought into the fact that the temple really wasn't around that long. I mean, it, it wasn't built until the days of Solomon, and then it didn't last because of the Babylonian captivity. And then it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel after being in rubble for a number of years. Then it was destroyed again. And then it was rebuilt by Herod, and it was only in existence for about 100 years during Herod's time. And then, and then it was destroyed again in 70 A.D. And yet God says, my son will be born while this temple stands in that narrow slice of human history. He will perform miracles, according to Isaiah 35. According to Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40, there will be a specific messenger who will precede his coming. We know his name, John the Baptist. Uh, Psalm 41 tells us that one of his friends will betray him. Zechariah 11 says that his friend will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11 turns around and tells you that that same 30 pieces of silver will be cast into the temple and picked up and used to buy a potter's field. He will be beaten and spit upon. That's according to Isaiah chapter 50. He will be numbered with criminals, according to Isaiah chapter 53. His hands and his feet will be pierced, according to Psalm 34. And people will stand around, oh, I'm sorry, where did I go? 
His hands and feet will be pierced, Psalm 22. Not one of his bones will be broken, Psalm 34. And then people will stand around and gamble for his clothing, according to Psalm 22. That's just a dozen or so, maybe a few more, of maybe 300 prophecies about Jesus, every single one of them of which came true. I suspect that you already know, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. <laughs> the odds. What are the odds? The odds of you winning the lottery are 80 million to 1. Wow. 80 million to 1. That's your odds of winning the lottery. The odds of you... Uh, now, depending on whose figures you use, actually, I mean, according to some of the websites that I looked at, they can actually help you with that. They can get the ads down a little bit for you. So if you go to a different website, you can kind of, I don't know how you can channel that, but they got it down to, on some websites, 18 million to one. So you got a better chance if you follow whatever, whatever they're doing, I guess. Your chances of being struck by lightning, you know what it is? Wait for it. A little quick on the button. Um, 250 million today. That's today. You have a 250 million, one in 250 million's chance to get struck by lightning today. But over the course of your average lifetime, your chances of getting struck by lightning are one in 9,170. So, you really might want to look out when your storm is get coming up, right? Here's the thing. The longer you live, the greater chance you have of being struck by lightning, Dave. Yes. Yep. The greater odds are... What's that? You already got it out of the way, so you've been hit, you've been hit twice? So he's... Look at that. And he took one for us. Yeah. You didn't... Did you make... Uh, did you worry? Don't they make glass fixtures out of when they get hit by nothing? Your turn, your thing, fingers or anything didn't turn to glass or anything. Okay. Um, if you lived in Washington D.C. for a whole year for twelve months, the chances are one in one thousand six hundred and eighty-one that you would be mugged. Oh, what did I say on the other one? I think I used that one thousand six hundred eighty-one. Um, you might want to avoid staying there over, over 11 months in Washington, D.C., right? Um, the odds of you finding a pearl in an oyster are 1 in 12,000. My brother actually found one. Somebody over here found one? 1 in 12,000. You had to pay for it. That was, no, my brother found a pearl in an oyster. So if you eat a lot of oysters, chances are you might find one. By the way, you're probably more apt to get rich eating oysters than you are playing the lottery. You'll probably be a lot easier to, rather, to, to get rich eating oysters, Irvin, right? All right, one, odds are a weird thing, aren't they? They're just really weird. Uh, back in the 1950s, you've heard this before, I love this illustration. Back in the 1950s, there's a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner. 
and he taught at the University of California as well as uh, other places. Um, and, and in his probability class, they decided to select eight different prophecies in, in the life of Jesus and try to figure out what the odds were of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies that had been promised about him. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. This wasn't just some guy going out and uh, messing with a pencil and coming up with something and going, hey, this will write a book. He had 600 university students working on this. The students very carefully, they weighed all the factors. They discussed all the, the, the prophecy, each prophecy at length. They examined the various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired together to fulfill a particular prophecy. They looked at all that. They, they, they made their estimates conservative enough so that there was finally unanimous agreement, even among the most skeptical students. However, Professor Stoner then took their estimates, and he made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable, that they were accurate in regard to the scientific material that was present. And one of the prophecies that they used, by the way, uh, for example, was, was that, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And, and so they took as best that they could at least whatever they could tell from the records, they took the number of people who might have lived in Bethlehem out of all the people on the face of the earth in that particular time, and they calculated the odds of how many children might have been born in Bethlehem that particular year out of all of those people. That's the way that they kind of went about trying to calculate this, and they ended up looking at those eight different prophecies, and this is what they said. The chances of Jesus fulfilling those eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I look at that, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. I, I know it's more money than I have in my bank account. Um, it's actually 1 followed by, this is what it equals, 1 followed, hit it again. 17 zeros. One followed by 17 zeros. A million is one followed by nine zeros. So I'll let you try to figure out how to push that, those zeros so you get out some kind of a gazillion chance out of that, I guess. Well, actually, if you equal that, here's what it really comes up to. It comes up to one in 100 quadrillion. That's the actual number. 100 quadrillion. You can get on the internet and figure out what a quadrillion is, but it's 15 zeros, but you add the other two, so it's 100 quadrillion. That's a lot, okay? One chance in that many, okay? And, well, to, in, in order to illustrate how large a number that is, Stoner gave this illustration. He says, suppose we, you were to take that many, uh, that number there, take that many silver dollars, and you were to spread them all over the state of Texas and about four, uh, two feet deep. 
Now, I, I want to just kind of give you an idea of what, that, what we're talking about here. Now, the state of Texas is about 268,820 square miles. Wisconsin is 65,556 square miles. So Texas is somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of, uh, oh, about four times as large as we are. Okay? But Stoner says, suppose you were to take one of those silver dollars, paint that silver dollar red, and then throw it at random out of an airplane or something into that pile of silver dollars anywhere, and he says, now, here are the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight. I'll give you two fours. Eight. Just eight of the many prophecies that were prophesied in his name. So we're going to take Urban here. And we're going to plant him in Dallas. We're going to blindfold him. We're going to spin him around, okay? That's what, and, and, and then we're going to give him a chance somewhere. He can run around as much as he wants all over somewhere, reach down, put his hand down in there, grab one silver dollar, and, and the chances of him reaching down and picking up that red silver dollar is that stuff, whatever that last number said. Stoner says that the odds of Urban finding that one silver dollar are the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. Uh, actually, and he, they go on to, 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 to share the odds, and it was just too much of, of what it would be like to go more than that. But, but I want to say, you're, you're questioning whether or not the Bible is true? I mean, hello? You're, you're questioning whether or not he is really, truly the Son of God? I mean, God could not have made it any more clear who his Son was than to have announced hundreds of years ahead of time 300 different things that you and I could identify, we could use to identify his Son out of all the boys that were born on the face of the earth. And every single one of them came true. So what? Right? That's what we really need to come down to. What is, so what? Well, here's what I come away with. God's word is absolutely reliable. You and I can trust God's word, and you and I can trust what God says. He said that he would send his son to redeem the world, and he did. And you can trust that. In fact, I find it utterly fascinating that when Jesus' birth is announced, here's the language that's used. He says, you will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted says or means God with us. Do you say that, God with us? Do you know how Matthew, the book of Matthew closes? Do you remember? Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world, make disciples, Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always. You get that? Matthew, he starts his gospel and he stops his gospel with the same exact words. God is with us. So what, right? So what? What? Well, that just means that you and I can believe that Jesus is the one and that you... You can place your trust in Him. God, 
just as God has faithfully kept every promise that he's made about Jesus, he will keep every promise that he makes to you. When he promises that if you, if you will come to him, that he will receive you, he means it. He will. When he promises that you cannot do anything that will keep him from loving you, that's correct. There is not a single thing that you can do to keep him from loving you. When he says that if you will receive me, I will give you the power to become, oh, I love that passage, I'll give you the power to be, become a son of God, a, a child of God, he means exactly that, that if you will receive my son, I will enable you, I will empower you to become one of my children. Then I just give you goosebumps. When he says that if you repent and you are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the Holy Spirit, he means exactly that. See, here's the point. God can be trusted. Jesus is who he says he was. And he says, come to me, give me your heart, and I will guard it, and I will protect it, and I will honor it in every way. You know, I know people, you do too, who have given their hearts Remember what we were talking about, people that we have confidence? Sometimes people have confidence in people. I know people who have given their hearts to other people. And those people have grabbed that and stomped on it, and they've done a bunch of other, and smashed it. I know that because people aren't nearly as trustworthy as we'd like them to be with that which is precious to us. But God's not like that. You can give God your heart. You can give Him... that and he will never ever stomp on it or smash it he will guard it he will protect it and he will honor it because all god ever wanted from the beginning of creation until now this is the story this is what we've been talking about for four months all god ever wanted was for you and me to be in a relationship with him amen so here's the bottom line You can trust Him. You can trust His Word. You can trust Him with your heart. All He says is just let me have all of it. And that's what I would suggest. Let Him have all of you. Sometimes, you know, we hold stuff back, don't we? Let Him have all of you because you can trust Him. That's His story. That is the story that we've been looking at. And that, my friends, is a story we're sharing. Let's pray. Father, you are a great promise keeper. We look at your word and we see over and over and over again the promise that was a promise made and a promise kept. All of it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it just blows my mind when you start looking at the figures of how, how impossible it would be. The odds are just, are just strikingly just overwhelming. And yet, God, nothing, nothing is impossible for you. And so we praise you today. And Father, if that information, the odds of, of all that, and uh, if we can take that somehow and we can 
somehow make sure that we are trusting in you daily. If that leads us to that decision, then so be it, God. Help us to trust you. Help us to not look at what we see around the world as our example, but to look at our example in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.